Morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you were here. Don't think I haven't noticed that little extra pep in your step. You know, probably excited this morning. Personally, I'm glad the way things turned out last night, or there would have been no joy in Mudville in this place, okay? But anyway, glad you're here. Um, by the way, did, was I the only one who saw Chris Smith's ginormous head on TV, like this big close-up? Yeah, everybody else see it. When you see Chris, just remind him of that anyway. But this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, so I invite you to open your Bibles there. Did something happen? Okay. The peanut gallery is over here trying to talk in my ear or something. Anyway, we're in the book of Romans, uh, a series we're calling Rags to Righteous. Now, as we're going to be in Romans 5 today, I know we have a number of foodies who attend this church, right? Those of you who fashion yourself culinary artisans. And undoubtedly, if you're a foodie, you have a favorite restaurant. And if you have a favorite uh, restaurant, chances are you probably have a favorite food at this favorite restaurant. So here's a food metaphor for our passage today. Here's where we're going. If being a foodie is like being a Christian, and if eating out is like reading your Bible, then my personal favorite restaurant would undoubtedly be Romans, right? But my favorite dish just might be Romans chapter 5. Church, to say that this is a rich, delectable passage does not even begin to do it justice. It's like Paul is bursting forth. He's been holding all of these things in, all these blessings he wants to share with us. Remember that Paul's been laying out his case for justification by faith, which, as Luther says, is the cardinal doctrine on which the church rides and falls. Now, Paul is going to lay out for us the benefits of justification, the, the kind of a, what I call a portfolio of blessings that become ours by virtue of our relationship with Christ. And that's where Paul wants to take us this morning. So it's, going to, it's a short text. There's so much here. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Father, we don't want justification by faith, as glorious of a truth as it is, to be a sterile truth, to be just an intellectual, mental ascent we make to the gospel. Lord, we want, like Paul, for justification to seep down into our bones. We want to come to see this amazing truth in such a way that we are not unchanged. And Lord, we pray that you would reveal your word to us as, the, as you want to communicate the blessings of what it means to be made right with you. Lord, we ask that you would do this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. You may take your seats. Guys, there's a, there's a startling transition that happens here in verse 1, and it's subtle, so you might not even notice it, but it has to do with Paul's use of pronouns. Now, we know that there's a debate culturally about the use of pronouns. This is something a little different, because Paul thus far has been using pronouns like you, and they, and them, and he. 
Because this is because Paul has been in the posture of a debater. He, he's been arguing, he's been trying to make his case for why we are justified by faith alone, by God's grace alone, not by anything that we do. And sort of he's aiming his discussion at those who might need to be persuaded. He's anticipating arguments. He is, he's forecasting ways that you and I might respond to the different things that he's saying. But here in verse 1, it's no longer you. Here in verse 1, Paul changes it to the we. He starts using we and us and our. And I think this is significant. It's almost as if Paul, like a father to his children, is gathering up his family. And he wants to tell them, family, children, wife, let me tell you about the most precious truths in the history of this universe. It's like he wants us to, to draw this into this intimate discussion. These are words, church, precious words that are reserved for those who are trusting in Jesus, who have placed their faith in him, who've been made right with God. And Paul just wants to gather us up and say, now let me speak truth and blessing over your soul. And there are three affirmations that Paul makes in this short text, and those are going to be our three points, and here they are. Number one, we're going to talk about peace with God. Number two, we're going to talk about access into grace. And thirdly, we're going to talk about hope in suffering. All right, the first pronouncement, peace with God, Paul makes, is in verse 1. It says, because we have been justified by faith, Paul says, we now have peace with God. Now, that word peace is kind of like that word faith that we were talking about a week or two ago. That culturally, it's come to mean any and everything. We talked about how faith can mean wishful thinking or karma or good luck. And peace is sort of kind of like that as well. See, this is not the Eagles and peaceful, easy feeling kind of peace, by the way, which is a great song. Hey, let's be honest. It's a great song, especially if you put it to the words of Amazing Grace. That's a whole other thing, right? But, there, but this is a different kind of peace here, okay? This is, that's a subjective peace. Paul is talking about something different. Paul is talking about an objective peace. See, when Paul talks about there being peace with God, He's pointing us to the fact that there has been an elimination of conflict. There's been a cessation of hostilities. There's been a permanent ceasefire between us and God. And if that sounds kind of dark and ominous, just know it is. It is. That's what Paul has been spending his whole time in chapters 1 through 3 talking about how by nature we are all children of wrath. By nature we are enemies of God. We are spiritual traitors. Unless you think this is just Paul, we see this echoed in all throughout scripture. Here's just a couple of examples. Colossians 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. James 4.4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The kind of peace that Paul is talking about is a serious kind of peace. Well, please understand, he's not just talking about the cessation of hostilities that happens between us and God through Christ. He's primarily describing, church, a new relational reality. There is a new status for us, a new state of being we have as a justified believer. We, there is a new status we check that we have with God that says when we are at peace with God, we are reconciled with the creator of the universe. You are at rest 
with God Almighty. That's what Paul is saying. This is what John Stott says. This is the heart of the peace which the prophets foretold as the supreme blessing of the messianic age, the shalom of the kingdom of God, inaugurated by Jesus Christ, the prince of peace. So God has made peace with us, Paul emphasizes, through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. But Paul also goes on to say that, that Jesus is returning one day to usher in a permanent peace. And it will be simultaneously both glorious and terrifying. And John, John Piper says it this way. The king is returning from a distant land. Going, he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to bring lasting peace. The question is, is that good news? Well, it all depends on what your status is, right? It all depends on who you are. If you're one of the king's people, if you're one of those loyal countrymen, you're part of the king's entourage, um, his loyal subject. This is great news indeed. You are eagerly anticipating the return of the king. But if you've been part of the insurrection or a traitor or involved in civil unrest or disobedience or disloyalty, the coming of the all-powerful king has got not good news at all. In fact, it's terrifying news. But for Oaks, in Christ, what Paul is saying is that we have nothing to fear. Your place with God is eternally secure. And this, by the way, this peace is open to everyone. I don't know if anybody saw this a few weeks ago. Kansas University was playing Oklahoma University in football. Kansas has lost like 199 straight times to Oklahoma or something like that. But miraculously, they found themselves up in the fourth quarter. And understand, Kansas is not a football school. It's a basketball school. Okay, Just keep that in mind. And so the, the crowd is sparse. You know, they're, they're, they're loyal, they're, they're there, but they're sparse. They, uh, they're, they're cheering their home team. But word begins to go around campus that the football team is winning. And, and not only are they winning, they're, beating, they're, 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 they're winning against the hated Oklahoma Sooners. And so what the administration decided to do was to open up all the gates, open up all the ticket outlets, let's let the campus flood in, right? To which they did. It was this amazing thing as people were coming all over the campus. It would be a perfect sermon illustration if Kansas had gone on to win, but they didn't. Okay, they didn't. <laughs> but it was the perfect example of what it means to offer the free and gracious key peace of the king. Brooks, there is no other important issue, decisive issue before you than that one. Have you made peace with God? See, and Paul says... Those of us who have been justified, we are no longer fugitives on the run. We are no longer just merely honored guests, but we now have a permanent place at the dinner table of the king because he has made his peace with us. Now listen to the way Colossians describes this. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, and here it is, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making, there it is, peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing 
the hostility. So this is an objective piece that Paul is talking about. It's not contingent upon how you feel. It doesn't go up or down, in or out, on or off. It's permanent. It's enduring. It's indissolvable. It, 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 is, it is an eternal, everlasting peace that God has made with us. Now, what do we do about subjective peace? Because you may be sitting here this morning and say, Pastor Paul, I, I agree with that. I, I get that. I know God has made peace with my soul and my, my, my soul is in his hands and my eternal security is, is, is been bought by him. But Pastor Paul, I just, I don't have a lot of subjective peace. My soul is not at rest. I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I'm anxious. Does that describe you? Can you understand that? Well, the, well, God is concerned about that kind of peace as well. In fact, this is the kind of peace ta- Paul talks about in Philippians 4. Very familiar passage. Do not be anxious about every, anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But here is where I think we often falter when it comes to peace. Problems come when we desire subjective peace at the expense of objective peace. In other words, we try to find mental rest, calmness for our souls without reference to God. See, we look for subjective peace in all the wrong places. We look and fill in the blank which one is appropriate for you. We find we try to find peace through our relationships or travel or purchases or jobs or experiences, or travel, or food, or drink, or sports, or hobbies. And by the way, all those things are amazing. They're wonderful. They're gifts given to us by God. But if you run after subjective peace without contending with objective peace with God, you will get neither. But if we embrace our status as God's people, who now have relational peace, we can have both as we submit ourselves to the gracious rule and reign of our king. What about you? Folks, are you struggling this season to find subjective peace? Maybe it's your marriage. We just heard awesome testimony of what God is doing through that ministry. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's with your job. Maybe, just maybe, are you struggling with subjective peace because you're not living into your relationship with God? You're not entrusting yourself. You're not submitting to his will. You're you're wanting all the the benefits of subjective peace without fundamentally bending the knee to God. Maybe that's why you have unrest. But maybe for some of you, it's, it's completely the opposite. You might think that you're really at odds with God when you're not. Are you someone who carries around like a load of shame and guilt and embarrassment? You know, shame is, shame is something that drives us underground. Shame is something that divides us and keeps us distant from other relationships. And maybe you just can't shake that feeling that, I mean, Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've trusted my life to God. I've turned to him in faith and repentance, but I just can't shake this sense of unrest in my soul. Maybe you need to be reminded that when we are faithful and just, to confess our sins. Guess what? Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are at peace with God. And we want to be very make sure we're not holding ourselves to a higher standard than what God holds us to. 
before Oaks, through Christ, God has wiped your sins clean. He's spoken shalom over your soul. And because of this, he offers peace to us, an objective peace. An objective peace as we learn to live in light of that and submit ourselves to God's peace. He gives us the peace that passes all understanding. They go together. No more important decision will you ever make or will you ever ask, do I have peace with God? And you do not have to walk out of this room this morning without there be a resounding yes. I, that is something that is available to me right here, right now, today, no matter where I've been. No matter what I've done. Maybe it was something you did yesterday. And you just can't conceive that God would make peace with you, but with you doing X, Y, or Z. But Paul says, it's not about you. It's about my grace. That's what makes it grace. Peace with God. Number two, Paul says we also have access into grace. Look at verse two. Access into this grace by which we stand. Now, the word access can, have a, can come to mean having a formal introduction. In fact, it's a reference primarily to people being conducted into the presence of royalty. Now, I saw in the news last day or two that Queen Elizabeth is feeling sickly. And, I mean, she's an, an amazing ruling sovereign monarch over 50 years. All those, she's in her mid-90s. But let me tell you, you just don't get to come in and hang out with the queen, right? What's the first thing you have to do to see the queen? First, you have to be introduced, right? And secondly, you have to come in. If you're a man, you have to bow. If you're a lady, you have to curtsy. There is a whole ritual of things that have to happen before you have access to her presence. Now, remember in the story of Esther, when Esther wants to come in to see the king, but she's uninvited, So what does she do? She comes in and she prostrates herself. She falls down face down and she waits to see, will the king receive me? And then he finally, what? He extends the scepter to her and she's granted access into his presence. That's the kind of access that Paul is talking about. When Paul says we have access into this grace, what he means is that we have a permanent place in the throne room. We have a permanent place in the very presence of God. We now literally have a place, which Paul says, in which to stand. Because there is so many amazing implications from this, but here are just a couple. This means that not only are we granted entrance into the realm of grace, but nothing can remove us from it. It is irrevocable. It cannot be dissolved. It's a permanent status or state of being. And even when we feel distant in our relationship with God, even when we have sin that we know is hindering our fellowship, we are never separated from Christ. We are never outside his presence. We have immediate and 100% access to him because of his death for us. Listen to the way John Stott puts this. Justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. Our relationship with God is not sporadic, but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers or messengers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign. No, we stand in it. For that is the nature of grace. 
Nothing can separate us from God's love. It's interesting that Stock mentions this idea of messenger. So in ancient times, if you were a messenger and you had bad news to tell to the king, you did not want to go tell the king, right? Because when you got into the presence of the king, the king didn't like what you had to say, you might not leave there with your head, right? That, that's just the way it went. Paul says, no, no, no. Not only are you safe in the presence of God, not only do you have that kind of access, but it's permanent. You don't go in and out of access with God depending upon how you feel. You, 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 you don't have God's favor one day and God's disfavor the next. You have a permanent status of one who belongs to him, who's one who is part of the family of God. And this is some amazing news. That's it's incredible news. And I just want to encourage you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Where in your life do you need to be reminded that your relationship with God is not sporadic, but it's continuous? Where particularly is that area in your life that you know that if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, God might be working in you, and certainly is, to conform you to his will. He might be pressing in upon you in your heart as he wants to make you into more of his image, but that never changes your status. Tim Keller says it this way. This is friendship with God. We can now go to God continually with our requests, problems, and failures. And he hears us and relates to us. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that whatever weighs on your soul this morning, that your father, your king, your sovereign, doesn't just invite you to come into the throne room, you are in the throne room. And he, his, his invitation is one, just draw near to me, child, that you have access through my son's death for you. Pour out your heart to me. Tell me what's on your mind. What have you been praying for season after season that you just feel like, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm just on the brink of giving up all hope. God says, remember, you have access. So that's our second blessing. Here's our third blessing and we'll be done. Hope and suffering. Now, let's, let's, here's the elephant in the room, right? We totally get with peace with God and access to God. Those are awesome, right? But when we start talking about God giving us the blessing or the gift of suffering, whoa, not so much, right? It seems so counterintuitive for what Paul tells us in verse 3 to do. Let's look at verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, Think about it this way. Suffering is an issue for everyone. Christians or not, all of us will taste death and suffering in some capacity. If you haven't yet, you most certainly will. I'm looking over here this morning. I see many of you who have had seasons of this even right now in your life. But everyone who is on planet Earth has to deal with this issue. What do we do with suffering? But it's Christianity and Christianity alone that embraces this idea of purposeful suffering. In other words, Paul doesn't say God simply uses suffering in your life, okay, although he most certainly does that. But in fact, he gives it as a gift, as a blessing for those who are justified in him. In fact, it's, it's part of the calling card of what it means to be a part of the family of God. 
that God has called us to suffer for his name's sake. Now, why does he do that? That's the question. What is it about suffering that God intends to ultimately bless our souls with? Tom Schreiner says it this way. Our sufferings conspire to produce greater hope. I want you to think about that for a minute. Paul seems to be saying that it is at those very moments of our most severe trials and sufferings that God kindles hope in our hearts. And that makes sense, right? Because when things are going well and everything is fine, we don't typically think in those categories of hope. But it's only when our life is threatened, only when when our lives of our loved ones, only when our bodies, only when our status, our relationship, our jobs are threatened, do we ask ourselves, where is my ultimate hope? I want want to take us through these couple of verses where Paul describes what happens. Okay, so let's start. First of all, Paul says, suffering produces endurance. Now, the word endurance, it it means to be single minded. Now, let me ask you this. When is it that you draw the most comfort from God? I would venture to say for most of us, it's when? During suffering. Church, when is it that you are most compelled to focus like a laser beam on your relationship with Christ? I venture to say it's probably during suffering. When you have some need, when your heart is broken, when you're pouring out prayers to him, And as we do this, Paul says, we exercise our spiritual muscles. We develop greater stamina. We we develop greater spiritual endurance. And those of you who have walked through seasons of this or are walking through this, you most certainly can testify, can't you? But Paul says suffering produces endurance. But secondly, endurance produces character. So So the word for character means to be tested. Once again, I ask you, church. When is it that we find ourselves growing the most spiritually? Is it in those seasons of, of blessing? Is it in those seasons where there is no conflict? There's, there's nothing that disturbs your soul. There's nothing that disturbs your peace. No, no. Once again, I think it's during suffering where we truly grow in grace. It's, it's in suffering where Jesus is in the process of reshaping our character and making us to be more like him. And so endurance produces character. Well, thirdly, look back at the text, Paul says character produces hope. And I think this is the link here. See, the reason a transformed character produces hope is that God, suffering is God's way of, re, of God reminding us I love you so much, but I love you so much, I don't want to leave you the way you are. I want to shape your heart to yearn for me. I want to shape your heart to cry out to me. I want to make your character to be more like my character. And the thing that we have to understand is that if you are walking through a season of suffering, this doesn't automatically happen. Okay, what I mean by that. Just because you go through suffering does not mean hope will mystically materialize. It requires a certain mindset. You see, hope is activated as we train our brain to reframe our sufferings, not as something as simply that's merely impacting us, but as something that God is wanting to do in us. 
I was reminded of this, thinking about the life of Deborah Facetti. Deborah passed away about three or four years ago. She had pancreatic cancer. Many of you know her story. And Deborah was at lunch with um, my wife, Susan. And Deborah was kind of talking about her journey and her experience. And I'm just going to quote Deborah. If you don't like what she said, you can take it up with her later, right? Okay, in heaven. But, but she just kind of sat there and she said, you know, cancer sucks. She said, cancer sucks. Then she said, but what, you know, wait a minute. She goes, no, it doesn't. Because the work of grace that God is doing in my life right now is one that he has designed this cancer specifically to deal with. And to me, it was just a beautiful picture of what it means to reframe our sufferings in light of the glory and purpose of God. Four Oaks, where do you this season need to be reminded that suffering in your life is because of God's gracious pleasure to you? He loves you. He loves you so much. He doesn't want to leave you as you are. And just as God called the Apostle Paul and said, Paul, you're going to walk in the way of my son, Jesus Christ, the path of suffering, which leads to glory. Paul, you're going to walk that path. Paul tells us, Christian, you are going to walk that path. But for us, we have at the end of this hope. And Paul says, this is the gift that God gives you through the blessing of suffering. And by the way, Paul did not speak from the ivory tower, did he? Paul had experienced immense loss in his life. Loss of his prior relationships, loss of his livelihood. Sometimes his very physical life was threatened. But Paul saw in it always that God intended his growth in grace. And it's the same for us. Listen to how verse 5 describes this. It says, his love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, understand something. When God comforts us with his love in the midst of suffering, this is not a one-time thing. See, the the, the verb is in the perfect tense, which means that it's not just a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing outpouring, a permanent flood of Christ's love into our hearts. It is something that he is continually feeding to us. Thought says this, it is a cloudburst on a parched countryside. And church, I just want to ask you to think about where are the parched patches of countryside in your life? Where are the the places where you're praying that God would be magnified in your life through your suffering? God takes us to that place so that we might know the abundance of his love and grace. Church, there's so much that we could say about this. And we will say more because this is not a peripheral theme in Romans. We'll return to it several times. But let this reminder from Paul settle in your soul. We are promised, and this, let's go back to the text for a second. Last thing, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Church, we are promised that when we put our hope in God, we will not regret it. We will, when we place our hope in God, we will not be ashamed. See, it's the Christian and the Christian alone who uniquely is able to answer this question. Have I fell out of, fallen out of favor with God? The answer is no. Have I fallen out of peace with God? The answer is no. Have I been denied access to the Father? The answer is no. But through Christ, 
It is all yes and amen. This is where suffering takes on its fullest significance, that Christ suffered, was raised to glory, and that we too would be raised up. So where do you need to be reminded the most in your life of Paul's words? Christian, if you placed your faith in Christ, you have peace with God. Christian, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have access 24-7, 100% of the time, all day, every day. Nothing changes that. And Christian, if you have placed your faith in Christ, God has promised to use your sufferings as you view them in light of what he wants to do in you for your eternal hope. Let's pray.